Let's open up our Bibles to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 16. Let's continue our time in the Word as we look through this most beautiful book of the Bible. It's God's Word. It's all beautiful. And last week we saw the, the first 13 verses of chapter 16 of 1 Samuel. Now we're going to read chapter 16, verses 14 through 23 through the end of the chapter. You follow along in your copy of God's Word. If you do not have a Bible of your own at the end of the service, in our welcome corner, please ask for one. We love to give away Bibles for you to have a, a copy of God's Word, a physical book in your hands. So 1 Samuel 16, verse 14, this is the Word of the Lord. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servants said to him, Behold now, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the evil spirit from God is upon you, he will play it, and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David, his son, to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly. And he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the evil spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the evil spirit departed from him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, our word, that, your word that is for us, your truth that is powerful to transform. Oh, Father, we pray that we would have ears to hear, eyes to see the truth found in this text. A text that speaks so much of your providence and of your relentless pursuit of redeeming a people for yourself. So help us to not just read it, but believe it. And you who knows the hearts of every man, woman, and child in this room. Holy Spirit, would you do what only you can do? Help us to rejoice in you now. Remove all distractions. Drop the RPMs of our heart that we could listen. And listen intently to your truth. Bless this time. In Jesus' name, amen. It was Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers in the 19th century, that preached a sermon on the providence of God. Out of the book of Ezekiel, chapter 1, verses 15 through 19, where Ezekiel sees a vision of these wheels. And it's a vision that he um, sees. And Charles Spurgeon is preaching out of this text, and he's using an illustration um, and the illustration is about a king who has been captured. 
and he's muddy, he's exhausted, and he's chained up to the axle of a wagon as his enemies are taking him away. His enemies are, are, are on the wagon, and, and, and he's on his way to a foreign land where he's going to be a prisoner. And the illustration says that Charles Spurgeon you know, says that at some a moment this king smiles and he laughs. And his enemies who are on top of the wagon look at him and say, why are you laughing? Don't you understand your state? And the king says, well, I've realized something right now. And that is that I am tethered to the axle of the wheel of this wagon. And I realize that this axle is fixed. It doesn't change. It doesn't move. It's always stationary. And yet I understand that this wheel is turning. And I see myself tethered to the one that doesn't change, God. But I see the providence of God in how the wheel is turning. Sometimes you are above it where it's not as difficult. That's where you are. And sometimes you're underneath it crushed. That's where I am. But because the axle never changes, God never changes, whatever happens in this life, whether we're under or above, whether it's easy days or difficult days, the providence of God is at work. I don't know if you know this, but that is the inspiration behind the name Providence Road Church. We're on that road of God's providence. And that is the inspiration of the logo of PRC. The providence of God is something that is very important for us to understand. It's a doctrine that is essential to the Christian life. I looked up a definition for the providence of God, and I found this, that the doctrine of divine providence asserts that God is in complete control of all things. He is sovereign over the universe as a whole, the physical world, the affairs of nations, thinking about Russia, Ukraine, and whatever has happened in world history. He's in charge of human destiny, human successes and failures, and the protection of his people. In other words, God's providence is always at work to accomplish whatever he has decreed and whatever he has desired. And as we look at this text, I want us to notice the providence of God in this interaction with David and Saul and the circumstances that we find in the text. And I want us to take with us this truth that we should live our lives tethered to the providence of God. Let us tether our lives to the providence of God and hopefully that will be on the screen in any moment now as the main idea for us to take. Now, if you go into our text, can you imagine what it must have been like for David, this young teenager who's in the field attending sheep, for someone, one of his father's servants or a brother or somebody ran to him and said, hey, hey, David, um, Samuel the judge, Samuel the prophet, he's here and he wants to see you. Talk about the providence of God in unexpected ways. Now, if you know the chapter that we started studying this past Sunday, chapter 16 begins on a very a serious note. Obviously, we know from the end of chapter 15 into 16 that Saul, the king of Israel, has disobeyed the commands of God. 
and God is done with him. He is no longer the king of Israel. God has rejected him. I mean, God has said, you are done. Now it's just judgment for you. And the chapter opens up, if you remember, with Samuel, the prophet. He is weeping. He is lamenting. He's grieved over Saul. He's overcome with sadness, maybe falling into depression, considering what it could have been if Saul would have just obeyed. He had so much invested in this young man. From the very beginning, he gave, he gave up his authority to give the people the king that they wanted and how he's, he's had to rescue him or to counsel him and to speak truth into his life or to correct them. But here, he's at the end of his reign as far as having authority from the Lord. He, he continues to reign, but out of his own will. And it doesn't go well for him. And so the Lord has to intervene in Samuel's life in that moment. And for us, it's comforting that this great judge, priest, prophet, this man of God is struggling. He's stuck and he cannot get out from his grief. God intervenes and asks him in verse 1 of the chapter, how long will you be in this state? Samuel, how long will you be grieving for Saul? Look, look, grab your horn, fill it with oil, because I'm sending you to Bethlehem. I'm sending you to Bethlehem, and when you arrive there, I want you to visit Jesse's house, and I want you to anoint one of his sons, because Israel has desired their own king. I told you, give them a king. They got Saul. It didn't work out, but now I am going to choose a king of, for myself. This is the one that I'm going to choose, where in God's providential work and in the purposes of God through this king, the Messiah would come. And Samuel, we see a weak moment in him. He is scared. He's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I've been down that road before. I had anointed Saul. Um, I have PTSD from all of this. You asked me to do what? But Saul's still on the throne. And on my way there, if Saul finds out, it's treasonous to now anoint another king king is completely against Saul. If he finds out, he's going to kill me. But unlike Saul, Samuel obeys. He obeys fully. He musters up enough faith, courage in the Lord, and he goes to Bethlehem, and he meets there with the elders of the town. They are also trembling. Samuel, what are you doing here? If you are with us a couple weeks ago, you found out that Samuel chopped the guy up into pieces Agog, the king, and that's a long story. Go back two weeks and hear, hear the sermon. Some of you might be freaking out right now. Over is all this in the Bible? Yes, it is. And Samuel is meeting with these elders. They're terrified. He brings a heifer, a, a cow with him, because the instructions of the Lord is to sacrifice this animal, meet with them, meet with Jesse and his sons, because as you worship, as you consecrate yourself, as you eat also part of the meal together, it's part of the process of the worship, I will point to you who you are to anoint as the king of Israel. And again, we see the weakness in Samuel. He sees the sons of Jesse, and he sees Eliab, and he says, surely this is God's anointed one. And he sees him, he's, he's tall, he's handsome, he's strong, and so it must be, but we see in verse 7 that God completely intervenes. He intervenes providentially 
He intervenes, and he's always intervening. Saul is locked up. He's, he, he is lamenting Saul. Hey, get up. I'm sending you to Bethlehem. In Bethlehem, he's like, man, you're about to make the same mistake that Israel made. They saw Saul as this tall man who looks, had so much presence, and Sam is about to make the same mistake. And God providentially intervenes. And he says, hey, Samuel, do not look at his appearance in verse 7. Don't look at his height. I have rejected him as well. I, the Lord, do not see things like you see things, like men see things. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the inside. He looks at the heart. So Samuel understood. He, he, he had a moment there, but then as the other sons, the other seven passed before him, there is no mentioning that he got stuck and like, well, is this the one? No, he's just, no, no, no. He's aligned himself with the Lord. He synchronized his purpose and just waiting for God to reveal to him who would be the one that he would anoint. And he goes through all the sons that are present. And Samuel tells Jesse, um, you, you surely must have another son. And Jesse's like, well, yeah, I have my youngest who's out in the field. He's, he's attending some sheep. Um, I mean, if you want to talk to him, yes, bring him. Bring him. And there is David in the field, and this servant shows up. David, come with me. Samuel wants to see you. And this scene, these two verses for me, it's like a movie, the climax of a movie. This is like music is in the background. This is happening in slow motion to me. Because Samuel says, hey, because Samuel knows there's one left. These guys aren't it. I love how he says they've, they have consecrated. They have prepared a table. They're about to sit down. And Samuel says, no one sits down. Everyone remains standing. Because this one who's coming, in his mind he's thinking, is the one. And David has no idea. Samuel has requested you, me? Me? And there he enters into that space. He sees his father, he sees his brothers, he sees the elders. He sees Samuel. He walks in like, yes, and the Lord reveals to Samuel that this is the one. Go to him. Anoint him with oil. Because this is the king that I have called. And God, he confirms that this young man will be the one who is fit for the job. He has seen what's inside of David, not just what's outside a dramatic moment. Now what happens after this moment? We don't know. We don't know what happens, but we can only assume. Like, <clears throat> excuse me, what is the protocol for one who is going to become the king of Israel? What's the tradition? What's the process? Does he have to go and train to be kingly? No, it's only been Saul. He was the only king. And there was some type of ceremony, but nothing's been made official. There's no tradition, there's no heritage. But Samuel has come so that he would know, so he would be anointed the new king of Israel. But we find in verse 19 of our text 
that it seems like when Saul is saying, bring me the boy, the boy that he had heard of, the boy that was recommended, who is now likely older, not much older, but older, is a young man who is tending sheep. In other words, he returned to his duties. And perhaps Jesse, his father, was like, well, hey, we just have to live our lives, continue doing what we're doing. David, do what you're doing, and the time will come. The Lord will reveal. And David, in very ordinary faithfulness, just living his life, he goes back to the field and he does his thing. He's not full of pride and arrogance, like, hey, I am the rightful king. I don't want to tend sheep anymore. I want to live a different kind of life. I have privilege now to go and do the things, because look what Samuel has said about me. This is not his heart. And again, we don't know what happens here. But we do know this, that he received the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God was upon him, and what a contrast to verse then 14, the contrast between David and Saul, because verse 14 tells us that the Spirit of God has now departed from Saul, has departed from Saul, and quickly we see the ascending of David and the descending of Saul. There's a dramatic difference between these two men. David is God's choice and anointed king. And Saul is the rejected king. And now we see in verse 14, the results of the Lord rejecting Saul. Two things happened immediately to Saul. And the first thing we find is that the spirit of the Lord, as mentioned, has departed from him. Oh, there was a moment when the spirit of the Lord came upon him. In chapter 10, verse 10, Paul received the, the Spirit of God. But we understand, as we talked about it last week, he received the Spirit of God not in a salvific way. It wasn't for salvation. It was how in the Old Testament the Spirit of God was given to people temporarily, supernaturally, in order to fulfill a calling on their lives. And for Saul, it was to be the king of Israel. But now the Spirit has departed from Saul, it has rushed upon David, and from now on, Saul will have to lead, reign, and exercise wisdom only in his strength. Whatever he does from this point on will be without the help of the Spirit of God. And as you read his life, as we continue in this book, and we see the life of Saul, we see a man who goes from bad to worse. You see a king who becomes unhinged and out of control. You see a man who shipwrecks his life after there is no more spirit of God in him. And we could just pause there and acknowledge the reminder for us. That the greatest gift that any man can receive from God is not health, is not wealth, is not prosperity, it's not a good career, it's not talents or gifts, it's not even a spouse 
or grandchildren or children of your own. The greatest gift that we could ever receive from God is the gift of the Holy Spirit. Nothing else. Jesus says in Luke 11, verse 9, he says, And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. To the one who knocks it will be opened. What, what father among you, if his son asks for fish, will instead give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the, will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Or, or how the apostle Paul in Romans 14, 17, for the kingdom of God, he says, is not a matter of eating or drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And so often we underestimate the work of the Spirit of God. And all those in the New Testament, the New Covenant, those of us who are here, who have been saved by grace, who have believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, who have been born again, who have received newness of life, we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit, the indwelling work of God through His Spirit. Paul says that we have become the dwelling place of God, the temple of God. Christian, do you realize that? Do you have the Spirit of God? Can you see the Spirit of God at work in you? Is He your counselor? Is He your comforter? Has He produced fruit in your life? The Old Testament, we said, is this temporary work of the Spirit, but in the New, He came to save, to seal, to empower, so that you could exercise your faith and your gifts, so that you could live. What does it mean to have the Spirit of God? Is to live the Christian life. And I think that oftentimes, Churches make great mistakes in this area. And I don't think that even we are not exempt from making these mistakes or not understanding rightly the work of God among us. <clears throat> on the one end, on the far end, you have those who are trusting completely. How do you know that God is at work among us? Well, they're very pragmatic. Pragmatic. <clears throat> they're program-driven. They have the bells and whistles. There are churches that seek to attract, to amaze, to keep the organization well-greased. <clears throat> if we just maintain what we have and we organize it well and we see people showing up, wow, look at what the Spirit of God has done. And over here, we also say those are just focused externally as well through legalism. Well, it matters how you dress and what music you play and how you act and and they're stiff, and uh, you know, because these are the ways. That's, that is what describes the filling of the Spirit and the work of the Spirit among us. And then on the other side, on the far extreme, you have these charismatic churches where, where it's also about the external. It's all about the emotion. It is all about what is sensational. It's all about how, how, how a lively or spiritual or what type of music we have or who could give a prophetic word or who could speak in a tongue. Always looking for the sensational to make sense of Christianity, to make sense of the Christian life. But I want to submit that on both extremes, all of those things can be produced by man. 
You can organize men like you organize a company. And if you grease it well and you organize it well, you can make things happen. And you can make people come. And they, and they will come. They'll want to come. And you can also be very emotional, sensational, and just want to see, see with your eyes all these things happen. And then say, okay, this is what defines Christianity. Man can build that, that paradigm all day. Just go to a secular concert. Go see your favorite band or your favorite singer. What will you find? A stadium full of people worshiping, crying, putting on the flashlight on their phone, raising their hands, singing songs in unison, going absolutely nuts over a person. It has nothing to do with God. So on these far ends, wherever it is, externally, you could produce all these things. Is that evidence of the Spirit's work? No. The Spirit of God is the greatest gift to His people. What does that Spirit produce? Well, it produces something that man can't produce. We know that much. It produces something that only God produces. So what are some of those things? For one, faith. Faith. The fact that you one day understood that your salvation was not through works, that you were a miserable sinner who could not save yourself, and that the best of you is insufficient, that when God, he calls you to account, he says, okay, where are your good works? You are bankrupt. You have nothing to show God. That's a huge stumbling block for every sinner. The fact that that was for you overcome, Christian, and that you could be assured that, man, it is through his grace and the finished work and the work of someone else, what, what uh, Luther would call an alien righteousness, it's not something I did, it's, it's something that somebody else did, that you would be convinced of that truth, only, this, only the Spirit could produce that. Or, the, or, or, or even simply love for the Word, that you love to open up God's Word and read God's Word and meditate on it day and night to any degree. That you would believe that this is the inerrant word of God, that it is God's book, that he wrote this for us, that in it it has power to save and to sanctify, and that, the, and that God uses his word and his spirit to produce in us this maturity that is needed to make much of Jesus, to glorify him, and to one day be with him in glory. Or how to have peace in the midst of the storms, in life's tribulations. We would ha have a steadfastness, a trust in our God. Only the Spirit of God can produce that. Or that we, we could be a church, 300 people in this place who could actually love one another, not devour one another. That there could be peace among us, that we could tolerate each other, outdo one another in showing honor. Count others as more as more significant than ourselves, that we can live sacrificially in service and in patience with one another, that we would want to pray, long to pray to the Lord. That's weird, talking to yourself. But be convinced that you're talking to God. Not out of re religion and ritual, but out of relationship. That you would long to do that with others. Or even in marriage, that you would have a commitment, husbands, to love your wives as Christ loves the church sacrifice, or that wives will want to imitate the church and be submissive to their own husbands as they both are committed to putting the gospel on display.
or longing to see your loved ones who don't know Jesus to come to faith, or your neighbors or your neighborhood, and the longing to evangelize and witness and share the gospel with those who are, if it's not for the gospel, they'll be damned, and that has completely burdened you. Who could produce that? Only the Spirit of God. And it doesn't appear to be very sensational on the extremes or very ex external or visible. But it is something that is nevertheless powerful. But we miss it all the time. Galatians 5, Paul says, Paul says, walk in the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envies, drunkenness, orgies, and things alike. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions. If we live by the Spirit, let us also be in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, and envying one another. Oh, this is the work of the Spirit. And Jesus said in 15, in John 15, he said, Abide in me and I in you, as the branches cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. The Spirit's work in us. We need the Spirit of God not just to save us. We need the Spirit of God to sanctify us, to empower us so that we don't shipwreck our faith, so that we don't devour one another, so that we would again and again be blown away by the truth of the gospel, so that then we could heed the words of Paul in Romans 12, 1, that we are to, as he, as he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Only by the Spirit can you even discern such truths. And in our text, the Spirit has left Saul. And he was left to himself to depend on his own wisdom, in his own sin, in his own emotional, all the emotional issues that he was having. And we'll see a man who is suffering from crippling anxieties, from insecurities, because all he has is his own twisted, demented, sinful thoughts and motivation. So verse 14, it says the, that the Lord, that he left him. The spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. But the second thing that we see that happened to Saul is that in my ESV here, it says an evil spirit came upon him. Perhaps your translation says a harmful spirit, which many would suggest that that is probably a better translation. But many people have been troubled with such a text. How do you make sense of a text like this? 
Some would say, man, God is love, kindness, He's all benevolent. Why are we seeing here a harmful or evil spirit be brought upon Saul? Well, we have to wrestle with the text to understand a few things. Because some people have said that when the Spirit of God is removed from Saul, then it left him vulnerable so that the enemy and demonic powers could then attack. And so they did. And who was tormenting him was a demonic oppression and powers on their own will. Now, the problem with that is that the text says, from the Lord. From the Lord. Now, one thing we have to also understand that if we have problems with that, if we're having issues reconciling, okay, how does God, who I think is all love and he's all goodness, he would never do something like that. Why is this in this text? We just have to understand that, that when we have these issues, our job is not to sort of have God adjust to what we think. On the contrary, we are the ones that need to adjust to who God is and how he operates. And, and I think what's happening here, and there's so much to read into this, could it be an angel that the Lord sent to you know, press him and to judge him and to, yes, could it be demonic forces on the permission of God, perhaps? If you remember the story of Job, if you've ever read the book of Job, Satan has to report to heaven Everybody, angels, demons, everybody, and the conversation happens between God and, and the devil about Job, how he's always honored you, God. Why? Because you've always blessed him. You give him everything he's ever wanted. He's never been tested. And God tells the devil, do whatever you want with him, but don't take his life. And his children die. He loses all that he has. And Job passes the test, but God allowed it to happen. So whether we could speculate all day on what this is that is happening, but we do know this, it's from the Lord, and we know that it is because of his disobedience, and it is the judgment of God upon him. One commentator said this, Saul's tortured state was not an accident of nature, nor, nor was it essentially a medical condition. It was a supernatural assault by, by being by being sent at the Lord's command, and it was brought on Saul's disobedience. So this was a product of Saul's rebellion, and the Lord is exercising judgment upon Saul. And if you read the rest of the book, as I just mentioned, you'll see the effects of all that. Because God is providentially at work, remember. The providence of God, the wheel is turning and God is moving the pieces. Saul owns his sin. He's a sinner. He's rebelled. He's been unwilling to repent. So God then passes judgment upon him. And we see how he would react in later days when we look at the rest of the book. What a reality check for us to at least just consider how if it's not for the restraining work of God in this world, if it would not be for the grace of God, the mercy of God, the patience of God, we would have already destroyed ourselves a long time ago. One of the stories of Saul later on in chapter 18 is uh, David is there playing for him to soothe him and to make him feel better. And in two 
moments, Saul, he grabs a javelin and he tries to kill David. He throws it at him. He dodges it twice. I'm like, man, I would have been long gone from there. That happens once to me, once. I'm done. It happened twice. We will destroy ourselves. Just look at world history, the blood. Look at right now what's happening in Russia and Ukraine. Look at the world wars, the genocides, the tortures, the conquest, the holocaust. Man is capable of all kinds of evils and atrocities if it's not for the Spirit of God and God himself restraining. Never think, because we have a way of thinking, you know, like, like man, I, I, I think we're more civilized today. I think that man really wouldn't be that barbaric. Listen, man is as barbaric as ever, uncivilized as ever. And you live long enough and you begin to see again and again the atrocities that man does. This Saul who was once this handsome put together man who became the king has now lost his mind. And interesting, his servants around him see it. Because verse 15, his servants said to him, Hey, we, we know that this harmful spirit is upon you. And we know it comes from God. Interesting observation. They're able to discern that he's being tormented by this one that the Lord has sent. But look at the same time, because they don't know God. They might, they might have discerned, hey, pinpointed, God has brought this upon you. Because they've seen how he's messed up in life. But they give a very... Bad advice. They don't bring a biblical solution to Saul. They bring a temporal one. They're like Saul, any unrepented sinner, every unrepented sinner in Saul's day and even in our day is under the judgment of God. And the hope of any relief, the remedy to have peace with God, to have peace in your soul is exclusively, exclusively and only through the acknowledging of sin and repenting of sin and turning from sin and believing in God and his provision through Jesus Christ. Nothing else. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one will come to the Father if not by me. But here is the temporal solution that these servants brought. And let's play for him some music. Let's bring some music in. Let's download on his phone Spotify. Let's, let's choose some good songs, some music that will calm him down. And definitely for the non-believer, that is a temporal thing. Yes, music has power. Music has power. It, it, it moves us emotionally. And perhaps music can calm you, but it's just an external temporary solution. And Christians do this all the time as well. Well, sometimes we, we think that if we just, you know, meditate, practice our breathing, if we do a little bit of yoga, be aware of your inner self. There's a, there's a church in Miami that, that actually was a Southern Baptist church. The pastor went to Southern Seminary, and you go to their services today, and their pastoral prayer time is actually like a yoga event. Breathe and 
connect to your inner self and find peace in your heart. And oh, this is foolishness. It is ignorant of these men and for anybody to think that the rebellion against God, the reality that we have sinned against God, and that the only way to remedy that is none other than just the cross of Christ. Repentance, turning from our sin and make peace with God. This is the truth of every sinner. The world lives under their rules and their own ways and their own discernments. And oftentimes they do crazy things to try to resolve their spiritual problems, but they find unwise, unfit solutions for life. I want you to know that, that is, if that's you this morning, that you'll find no peace outside of Jesus. And that the miracle of the Spirit's work in you has to convince you that you have nothing to offer God that you need repentance and faith and belief in Jesus, the one that he has sent. This is the problem of Saul. He's never repented. He's never admitted sin. He has never turned to God. How different would it have been for Saul if he was not prideful? James 4, 6-10 says, James says, but he... Speaking about God, gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Perhaps how different would it be for you, friend, you who maybe are here and do not know the Lord Jesus, that you would understand your great need of a Savior. It's amazing how all it takes for a, a man to be saved is to see his great need of a Savior, and with genuine repentance, he will have peace with God forever. And yet that becomes the greatest of stumbling blocks for people. Jesus said it is easier for a camel to, be, to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to be saved. He says that broad is the road that leads to destruction, but narrow is the one who leads to salvation. Because that broad road, people do not want to hear, I'm not good enough. I've offended God. My works are filthy rags. I, there's nothing I can do to make a, a step towards God and for him to be pleased with me. It requires dying to yourself and acknowledging your wicked ways. Well, these servants are telling their king, we see you are afflicted. Turn, turn from your sin is not what they're telling him. They're not telling him, be, repent and be restored. No, they're recommending a solution that at best can temporarily soothe his emotions, calm his anxieties, a solution that has no lasting effect on the soul. We need to be confronted with our sin and see that the only way is through repentance and faith. And even Christians need to be reminded that we live a life of repentance. We just live our lives and we struggle in life and oftentimes the answer, the solution to this sanctifying moment is that I'm believing wrong things. 
I'm doing the wrong thing. Yes, passively because of Jesus and his work, I'm saved by grace. But in my walk with the Lord, in my faithfulness to him, in my obedience, I'm, I don't realize that what I, that what I need to do is repent of my sin so I can live for Jesus and make much of him and put the Spirit's power on display as I live the Christian life. But we think differently sometimes. We think that the problems I have is just, I need a vacation. That's the, that, that is the primary solution. I, I, I don't think on repentance of, uh, of my unbelief. I think I just need a break. Man, I just need more money to remove this anxiety from me. Man, I just need a better husband, a better wife. And I'll be a different person. I wouldn't be as angry. Oh, that I would just have better health. And I wouldn't be so troubled. If my past, all the things that I experienced, all the pain and the hurt, if I wouldn't have just gone through all that. I think that oftentimes our issues, our anxieties, our sleeplessness, our depression, and I speak to myself as well. What if, what if the problem I'm having is a lack of repentance and trust and rest in the Lord? How quickly we dismiss or ignore that maybe that's what we need to confess our sins and repent. And if anything, verse 17 tells us, I think the importance of having godly counsels around us. We need one another, we need the church, we need God's people so that they don't give us temporal solutions to our problems, but that they would point us to God, point us to the Savior. The Spirit of God has departed from Saul, and he orders exactly what the servants suggest. So they say, hey, let's provide for him some music. And one of them says, hey, I know a kid. I know this kid, I know this young man who's the son of Jesse. Why don't, we, why don't we recommend him? We hear that he could play the harp pretty well, the lyre. Maybe he's the one who needs to come. Saul says, provide for me this man who could play well. He says, we know him. Interesting, the providence of God. Here we see the providence of God at work, because they describe him perfectly. This is this young man who's a son of Jesse, who is skillful for playing. He's a man of valor, he's a man of war, prudent in his speech, a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. What can we say about what they're describing? Well, well first we could say that he is a disciplined young man. He's a shepherd, he's in the fields, but he takes time to learn a, a musical instrument. He's great at it. It takes discipline and hard work. He's, a, he's a, a brave man, a man of valor, a man of war. We don't have evidence that he's been in war, man, but he's been fighting off beasts that are, fighting, that are attacking his sheep for a long time, wrestled a bear, a lion, and, and he's known for a guy who's a protector of his sheep says he's prudent in speech. He's measured with his words. He has presence. He's self-controlled in how he speaks. And he has good presence. He's put together. And, and what a, a good advice for every young man 
right, to, to be this disciplined man of valor, prudent in speech, and well presented. But what's most important about what they say about David is not any of those things, but it's the last thing that they say. What is it? The Lord was with him. At the end of the day, that's what really matters. That the Lord is with him. We said last week that Saul and David, there's a lot of things they have in common. They're both sinners. And David had his share of grave mistakes in his life. But the Lord was with him. Because David was a man after God's own heart. He was a man of repentance. And to all who trust in God, for all who have repented of their sin, have believed by faith in the one that he has sent, we've said this already, God is with him or her. Why? Because he gives his spirit to those who are his. His presence, his spirit, rest upon all of those who call upon his name. And Saul hears this resume, and he's like, huh, he sounds like a good guy. Go get him. He's where? Attending sheep? Well, go get him and bring him to me. And here we see the providence of God at work. Because it's so ironic, because what is it that Samuel tells Saul in chapter 15, verse 28? When he tells him, Saul, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you. That moment where Saul grabs Samuel's you know, uh, uh, tunic and it rips. And he uses that to show the illustration and tell Saul, the Lord has torn the kingdom from you. And he tells him, and he has given it to another, to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And we know who that is. That is David. And who is the one who is inviting this other neighbor who's better than him into the king's chambers? Saul himself. How and why is this happening? Because the providence of God is at work. Because God is behind it all. He brings him in providentially to demonstrate or to set up what needs to be happening. Why would this newly anointed king be brought into the king's chambers to play music? And perhaps you would think that maybe in his flesh, David's like frustrated. Man, I'm the anointed king. I'm tending sheep for who knows how long, and now I'm, I'm asked to go where? To the king's chambers? to play some music for him. He's a crazy man. Why can't I just take his place right now? That's not his disposition. Seems like he's trusting the Lord and is here to serve. But what if, what if, what if God has him there so that he could see? He's, he's in the Oval Office. He sees how the government is being ran. He sees the needs and the lackings of this king. It's almost as if as he's playing for him, he's training him to be at the right moment the rightful king. So they bring him in. And he plays music for Saul. Jesse packs up his bags and he 
loads him up on a donkey. He sends him off, his youngest son. And there he enters into his service, plays for him. And the text says in verse 21 that Saul loved him greatly. He became his armor bearer. I don't know, I, I don't know about this loved him greatly. We've never seen evidence of Saul loving anybody. I think it's more like, man, I love how he plays. I, I like this kid. He's playing, he makes me, I mean, it's the right station here, you know? Like, like, whoa, yeah. I need that on repeat. Hey, why don't you send a text to Jesse, his dad, and, and tell him, hey, hey, look, he needs to stay here. Orders from the king. I need this guy near me. And since he's already there, I'll make him my, my armor bearer as well. I think that's what's happening there. And here we find that quickly, David is the one who is here ministering to the king. He remains in his service. And verse 23, whenever the harmful spirit, the evil spirit from God was upon Saul, David, he took that harp, he took the lyre, he played it with his hands. So the music was a refreshment to him. And in those moments, the evil spirit would depart from him and he would be calm. What a moment. What a picture of this greater one who is coming after Saul. Saul, there's a neighbor that's coming. He's better than you. And with Saul not even knowing, there he is, soothing his anxiety, ministering to him through music. But what a amazing picture in God's providence, how he's working and orchestrating and moving all the pieces of history so that then we could also see that from the line of David would come one greater than David. One who will come not just to soothe externally and temporarily all the tribulation that man has, but one who will come like a Jesus when he was with his disciples in the Sea of Galilee and how the winds began to rise and the seas began to rage in Mark 4, 35 through 39. And it is this Jesus who then tells the wind and the seas to shut up, calm down. And that this greater than David king who's coming from David and God has his presence in this moment because he's the Lamb of God that was slain before the foundation of the world, but providentially in his providence, as the wheels are turning, these things need to happen. Saul in his disobedience is under this wheel. He's crushed. All he's getting is judgment. David is figuring out his place. But there's one who in God's perfect timing will come who won't soothe us externally to calm our emotions, but who will hush the wrath of God against our sin. That he would be the one who by his righteousness and his perfect sacrifice, that he would be the one who God would receive and say, it is enough, it is sufficient. So that then for those of us who would repent of our sin and believe and trust in him who came, that he would not be like David, but that he would be the one 
the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And God is orchestrating this from this text, from all of history. He is providentially at work so that this would become the outcome, the outcome that we get to enjoy today, being freed from condemnation, being freed from judgment, being freed to live for our Savior who completely has satisfied the wrath of God against us. What a beautiful way of seeing life that whatever point of history, I can say this, I rejoice in being tethered to the axle of that providential wheel that I could be under it crushed or above it in peace. Paul says, I have learned how to suffer well. I know what it is to have abundance. I know what it is to have need. I know what it is to be crushed but not destroyed blessed beyond the curse. I know how to be shipwrecked. I know how to be stoned to practically death. I know how to experience this life under the sun. It is not fun at different points of life. But I know that God has provided a way. And it is all part of a beautiful redemptive plan that this blink of an eye of this life will one day be over and one day we will be seated at the Lamb's table together, enjoying our Savior. For those who have known the Savior, who know Jesus, listen, the heavens opened up just like Jesus in his baptism, where the Father said, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. He says that of you. In your worst day, he says that of you because it all depended upon him, the one who came to soothe our soul and make peace with God. So two realities and we're done. Two points and we're done. Just commenting on them. Number one, God's providence is bitter when we don't have the Holy Spirit. In other words, God's providence is bitter when you do not know the Lord Jesus. Because when you do not know the Lord Jesus, all you have upon you is judgment and then you could be like a Saul at the right moment in the right point God is just done and will use you to accomplish his purposes it could be bitter and if it's not it's because God's common grace has been in your life but one day you will you will experience the bitter of eternity without his grace in a place called hell and secondly, God's providence is sweet when we have the Holy Spirit, when we know the Lord Jesus Christ. Because then we could rest in that God knows what he's doing. And we could count it all as joy in the midst of affliction. Because we know, like Peter says in 1 Peter 1, that we, our faith is being tested like by fire, refined as a dirty stone who is being put through fire to remove the impurities so that the other side will be something glorious. God's sanctifying work to the measure and the purposes of his will for us. We could then receive it all as sweetness through the struggles of our humanity because God has done an amazing thing in giving us an incredible savior and his spirit to carry us, to sustain us, and to one day take us home. How are you how do you see God's providence in your life? 